Good morning, New Life Fellowship. My name is Aaron Koonsman. I'm one of the pastoral elders here. Today we're going to be spending some time in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible, this is going to be a, a good day to, that you're going to want one in front of you to, to flip through. You can raise your hand. The ushers will be happy to provide you with one if you don't have one. Got up on the screen here uh, the sections that we're going to predominantly be looking at, the first being in Joshua chapters 5 and 6. And you may want to just stick your news bulletin or a piece of paper or something in Deuteronomy chapters 18 and 20, just so that when we get there, you can flip over to that pretty quickly. Our primary focus is going to be on Joshua chapters 5 and 6. So before we get started, please join me in prayer this morning. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning wanting to, to learn more about you, who you are, and what you would have for us in this life, how we can follow you, how we can best um, glorify you as our Savior and our Creator. Lord, teach us this morning in this message that uh, you've laid on my heart that I've prepared. Just pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a little bit going to be a, a heavy topic this morning. But this is the type of subject matter that I guess in, in some way is, always seems to be on my mind, always comes up again in my, my own life. So the question I want to start us with this morning is, have you ever had somebody accuse you as a Christian of worshiping and following a wrathful God? A God who, who sanctions the slaughter of, of babies and of, of women. Have you ever been asked how, how you as a Christian can say things like the Crusades were carried out by some non-Christians? Those are something that is you know, abhorrent to Christianity, yet they will point to other parts in the Bible where there are these wars and battles and, and killings. And they'll say, well, how do you, how do you justify this, this idea about the Crusades, yet there are these other things that seem to be sanctioned by God in the Bible. Well, today, we're going to be touching on several different things from the book of Joshua. So first, we're going to talk about the character and nature of God. And we're going to talk about how these ancient wars that we, we read about in the Bible what does God say about those, and how do they compare to more modern wars? You know, what's going on? What's the difference here? And especially even things like the Crusades. And then lastly, we're going to touch on how we as Christians should be interacting with and responding to God when he is calling us to do things. So the book of Joshua continues the narrative of Israel after their exodus from Egypt. And we've been going through that Essential 100 series, and we've read some of these passages already. So if you remember, this is the transition time when Moses had just finished leading um, the nation of Israel, and he was transitioning power and leadership over to Joshua. And at the very end of the book of Deuteronomy and going into the beginning of the book of Je Joshua, that is when Israel is starting to finally enter into the promised land. In Joshua chapter 4, Joshua has brought the Israelites to camp at a place called Gilgal. And this is about two miles northeast of the city of Jericho. And this is right before they are going to be entering into the promised land. And in the beginning of chapter 5, the Lord has Joshua circumcised the Israelites, which is something that they'd actually not been doing ever since they left Egypt. 
um, if you remember, circumcision was part of the covenant that God had with the Israelites. And this is an agreement that goes way back to Genesis chapter 17, where Abraham had promised, and, and God had promised, as part of the covenant, that God would be the sole God of Israel. In exchange, God would deliver Israel and give them this promised land. And part of the symbol, part of the sign of this covenant was circumcision. And so that gift, that promise of the promised land, of them being led back into the promised land was about to happen. God was about to lead Joshua and the whole nation there. But the Israelites had not been doing circumcision. They hadn't been doing it for the whole 40 years that they were wandering in the desert. So it makes sense. God is about to fulfill the promise. And it makes sense, and he actually orders Joshua to have all of the men um, in the nation of Israel circumcised at this time prior to actually being delivered into the land. And and Joshua obeys this, all right? And so um, he is camping in Gilgal while the men are being healed. And this is right where we are are picking up now. So we're going to start in Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 10, and I will just read along. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out, and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So this is the lead up to the the famous battle of Jericho. And I want to start as we're talking about this in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. And I'm just going to read it again. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Now, Joshua clearly had no idea who this guy was, all right? He goes up to him, he's asking, you know, who he's for. And then in verse 14, he responds by saying, as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And then after that, in, the, in our NIV translations that we have here, it says that Joshua falls down to the ground in reverence. Now, it's interesting to note that this word reverence that is used here, um, is, it's, used, it's the word saha in Hebrew. It's used in uh, various other parts of our Old Testament. 
Actually, another example for you is in Exodus 20, verse 5. The verse is, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. And this is talking about idols. God is giving this command in the Ten Commandments. And the word saha is this word, worship. Okay? So, it's the same word. You should not bow down, down to them or saha them. We also have another example here. Do not worship any other god. And this is from Ezekiel 34, 14. And again, that same word, worship, is the word, the Hebrew word, saha. So actually, in our passage here, when we see this word reverence, that is the same word of either reverence or worship. And actually, some other translations of the Bible will say in there, and Joshua falls to the ground in worship. Now, this is important because this is an event in the Bible that many would contend is a theophany. All right? Now, a theophany is a situation when God is showing up in some form on earth. Okay? Now, this could be in the form of an angel. It could be as an object of some sort, like a pillar of fire or something. Or, in our passage, this is God showing up as a man. And I'm not going to get into all the reasons why I would consider that this is a theophany, because it's not as critical for our text this morning. But if you're curious, you know, feel free to come talk to me about it afterwards, and I'll kind of explain what some of that reasoning is. But, but this is a situation where Joshua is actually encountering God in person. And we read in verse 13 that the man, God, okay, has his sword drawn. Well, what is the significance of this? You know, the man's there, he's got his sword drawn. What is the significance of having his sword drawn? And this is going to seem a little bit tangential at first, but it's actually going to be really important when we start getting into our further discussion and trying to understand what is the nature and character of God. And we're going to get back to that in a little bit. But to understand what it means by God's sword being drawn, I want to look at a couple other passages that have some similar types of text in them. And the first is going to be from Numbers 22, 21 to 23. And I'm going to put it up on the screen here. And um, this is actually the story of Balaam, all right? Balaam was a man who was involved in the practice of divination, which is an ungodly way through the influence of demons and reading omens of being able to tell the future. And Balaam was asked to put a curse on the Israelites. So I'm going to read the passage here. Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went to the princes of Moab, But God was very angry when he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing on the road with a sword drawn in his hand, she turned off the road into the field. Balaam beat her to get her back on the road. So we have a situation here, again, where there's an angel of the Lord with his sword drawn, because God was angry with Balaam because he was about to try and go out and put a curse on the Israelites. So keep this passage in mind. The second passage I want to look at really quick is from 1 Chronicles chapter 21, uh, verses 14 through 16. And this is the story when King David decided to take a census of Israel because he wanted to go to battle and he wanted to count all the men in his army. And this was a sign of unfaithfulness on David's part. So God was very angry with this practice, and as a result, inflicted punishment on King David and the nation of Israel. We'll just read that passage really quick as well here. It says, So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. 
But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was destroying the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing on the threshing floor of Aruna Jebusite. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a sword drawn in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. So in punishment for Israel, God sends an angel with his sword drawn to inflict a plague in this situation. And the common element, again, in both of these passages is there's an individual with a sword drawn who is inflicting judgment and punishment over a group of people. The first situation was with Balaam, and the second was on David and also on his armies. So the sword drawn, okay, is a sign, it's a symbol, if you will, of imminent or actual judgment that is taking place. So with this in mind, we can go back to our Joshua passage and get a little bit better understanding of what's going on here. Now, Joshua and the nation of Israel were not sinning, okay? They had just gone through with the circumcision thing. Uh, God was about to bring them into the promised land. There's no reason to interpret the angel, or the man in this case, with his sword being drawn, as a sign of judgment against the nation of Israel. However, Jericho, the city of Jericho, was actually involved in both sin and idolatry. And I'll, I'll show you how we know that in a little bit. But what is happening here is that God is appearing with his sword drawn as a sign of preparation for judgment of the city of Jericho. So starting back in verse 13 in uh, Joshua chapter 5. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What does my Lord have for his servant? Now, I was reading through this passage probably a year and a half ago at this point, and th- this, this really struck me. I thought it was pretty interesting because I think that we would all expect in this situation, you know, Joshua asked this question of, of this man who's standing there, and if he's God, we would expect him to say, well, I'm on your side, of course. But, but that's not what he says. He says he's on neither side. I mean, it would seem that, you know, God was protecting the nation of Israel. He was delivering them there. You know, why would God not just say, well, you know, I'm on, on Israel's side? Well, I think that the obvious takeaway from this is that it's not whether or not God is on Joshua's or on the nation of Israel's side. It's whether or not Joshua is on God's side, okay? And for us today, it's not whether or not God is on America's side, God is on, you know, the Republicans or Democrats' side, or, or whether or not God is on our side. The question is, are we on God's side? Who would this God be? Who would our God be if he was forced to pick and choose between choices that we've laid out before him? Why would that really even make any sense? So the question is, is whether or not we are on God's side, not whether or not he is on our side. So continuing in verse 15. The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, this is an interesting verse, because it's actually only one of two places in the entire Bible 
where a person is told to take off their sandals because they are standing on holy ground. Now, I don't know about you, but I know in, in my experience, you know, there's some situations that might be in a worship service or, or something where, you know, maybe the person leading worship or the pastor or somebody will say, oh, you know, take off your, your shoes, your, you know, this is holy ground, or we, we might see that sometimes today. But by no means was this a normative practice within Scripture. Okay, again, there's only two times in the entire Bible where an individual is ever told to actually take off their shoes because they're on holy ground. And the only other situation that we see that you're probably familiar with is with Moses um, when he was at the burning bush and he encountered God there. So because of this, it makes sense that there's something unique about these two situations. And um, there are some Bible commentators would actually suggest, and this makes sense to me, that both of these situations are commissionings of sorts. With Moses at the burning bush, he was commissioned to bring deliverance to Israel from captivity. And then with Joshua, he was commissioned to bring victory to Israel as this gift of the promise of going into the promised land was being given. But there's something else I think that's important to note here. Because remember that Joshua had just been asked, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the command to Joshua was this response to take off his sandals. And it was only after this that God actually gave some very detailed instructions about how to, to go into battle in Jericho. And, and I think this is a reminder for me, at least, and, and maybe for you as well, but as a, as a task-oriented type of person, my first response to God and to people tends to be asking a lot of questions. What do I need to do? What's the next step? And, and I get very focused on all of these things, this whole to-do list, if you will. But God is telling Joshua here, you know, he, he asked him, what, what do you want me to do? God is telling Joshua, take off your sandals, the ground that you're standing on is holy. And I, and I think that this is a, is, it should be a reminder to us that our first response to God the first thing that we should be doing is standing in worshipful recognition for who he is. You know, remember, we're in a relationship with God here. We're not just, you know, we're not just doing checklist, you know, things for him, and he's not just, you know, fulfilling things that we ask of him. It is a relationship. So it's important that we recognize worshipfully who he is. So moving on to Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. Now, Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. And God's not saying, I'm going to do this. He is saying that it's already done. Now, it didn't look so done, okay? Yet this is what God is proclaiming. And then in verses 3 to 5, God gives Joshua his instructions. And this is not instructions, you know, of how to, you know, wage this super skillful battle, but it's something totally different and you know, opposite, I'm sure, of what, what Joshua was expecting. Because God tells Joshua to march around the city blowing trumpets of ram's horns for six days, and then on the seventh of the day to do it seven times, and then all the people shout and then rush into the city. And there's no doubt, okay, that for Joshua to follow these commands of God in this situation would have taken a tremendous amount of faith, okay? And God is clearly giving the message that this battle is not going to be won by, you know, skillful warfare, this is going to be won by God's own hand. And Joshua follows his lead, and the result is complete victory in the battle. 
So as I mentioned in the very beginning here, this passage in Joshua demonstrates to us how we should be interacting with and responding to God. And it does so in this way. The first thing, when we are responding to God, when we are recognizing who he is, is we have to make sure that we are on God's side. We're not, again, asking questions that, well, is God on our side? What does God think of the thing I'm doing? It's, are we doing the thing that God wants us to do? Are we on God's side? And again, this is the situation of Joshua meeting the man with his sword drawn and, and God responding, hey, I'm not on either side here. Joshua needs to be on God's side. We need to be on God's side. The second thing, our first response to God should be one of worshipful recognition of who he is. And again, this is Joshua being told that he's standing on holy ground and that he needs to take the sandals off of his feet. That's the first response, not to start going and getting really busy with this and that. The first response needs to be worshipful recognition of who God is. And the third thing on here is once God tells us something to do, our response needs to be faithful obedience to God's instructions, okay? It might seem ridiculous what God is saying to do. It probably seemed really ridiculous to Joshua that, you know, the way he was going to win this battle was to march around the city blowing trumpets, okay? Yet, Joshua responded in faithful obedience, and the result was victory, and God was glorified in that. So Joshua did all these things, okay? Marched around the city of Jericho. The battle was won, and God was glorified in that victory. And we, we read about this in Joshua chapter 6, verse 21. And it says, they, and it's they meaning the Israelites, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. So this is the complete and total destruction of the city and killing of everyone and everything that is inside except for Rahab the prostitute, which, if you remember, was from back in Joshua chapter 2. She was the one who hid the spies when they first went into the city of Jericho. And this is God's judgment being carried out by the Israelites on the city of Jericho. Now, this is where people, and you may very well consider yourself among this group, may find this whole situation a little bit uneasy. Because we can understand, perhaps, that the killing of all the fighting men, but when we read about the killing of women, killing of children, and even the animals in this situation, that may seem perhaps unwarranted to us, if not completely unjust in some cases. And if God was sanctioning this sort of activity back then, okay, so it says the critic of Christianity, if God was sanctioning this back then, then how can we say that things like the Crusades are unjustified? It would seem like this type of holy war is perhaps just the normal way that God does things. I mean, it it is in the scripture after all. Well, how does this historical battle fit into our understanding of a loving, holy, and just God? And, And to properly understand this, we need to remember, again, what it meant for God to be standing there with his sword drawn. Because God was about to inflict judgment on Jericho and actually all the nations of the promised land. And he was doing this as punishment for their own sin. Okay, it's for their own sin. And we read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 4. And it says this. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, no. 
It is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. So the reason for the utter destruction of the nations in the promised land is not because Israel is so wonderful, okay? It's not because God just needed to get these people out of the way so that he could give them the gift of the promised land. The reason that the nations, um, the people inhabiting the promised land were being driven out and killed is because God, with his sword drawn, was inflicting punishment on them because of their own evil ways. And when we read what God's judgment was to be in Deuteronomy chapter 20, and you can flip there now, that was the other passage that we had. Uh, It's Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 17. Starting in verse 16, it says, However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. And why such complete annihilation? Continuing in verse 18, it says, Otherwise they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. So God's judgment that was to be carried out by Israel was the complete destruction and killing of everything that breathes in these nations. But this was the specific punishment, okay? It's the specific punishment and judgment for these nations. God is not establishing a historical precedent. And we know this if you look a little bit earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 20. If you look at verse 10, we read that for the cities who are not in the promised land that are being attacked, there's first a call to make peace. And if they make peace, everyone was just to become a subject of Israel. But if for some reason those cities were decided to go out in battle, the only individuals who were to be killed were the fighting men, and everybody else was to, was to remain alive. So this was more of the standard operations for battle that God had laid down in Scripture. But again, for the promised land that was under the specific judgment and punishment of God, things were a little bit different. And that's when we see this full annihilation going on. And so for this reason, okay, that the methodology of killing everyone, all right, young and old, men and women, as part of a holy war, cannot be justified outside the context of the promised land in ancient Israel. But the way that this did play out, okay, that this judgment was inflicted by God on the inhabitants of the promised land should highlight two very important things for us, and I want to go through both of these this morning. The first is that there's a universal standard for right and wrong, okay? And the second is that without the covering of Christ, there is judgment and punishment for sin. And we're going to go through these now. So first was that that there is a universal standard for right and wrong. Now, most Christians would not deny this point, okay? We have a God whose unchanging character defines what is good and what is evil, okay? But I know that for me, sometimes I fall into this trap of thinking that what is good and bad really is only something to worry about as a Christian. That without Christ, you know, perhaps talking about sin or what is sinful is not particularly relevant. After all, we often talk about how we are obedient to God because we love him. And so if somebody doesn't know God, they're not going to love him. So why would they be obedient? Why even, why even bring this up? Okay. The problem with this mindset is that God punished the nations of the promised land 
and God promised the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, for example, not simply because they didn't follow him, okay, but quite explicitly because of their sinful behavior and practices. And we're going to look at a couple passages here. This is from Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50. And it says this, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned, They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Now, obviously not worshiping God is sinful, but this passage isn't even talking about that, all right? It's just talking about specific sinful behaviors. Another quick passage here is from in our Deuteronomy passage. This is in chapter 18, so you can flip back a couple chapters. Um starting in verse 9 in Deuteronomy 18. It says this, When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter to the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable practices, and this is the key here, because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you. So again, we have things laid out here that God is laying out, things that are evil in God's sight, and he is specifically judging the nations because of these things, not simply because they didn't worship them, but because there is this universal standard of right and wrong that God judges all of us, whether we are following him or not, according to that standard. And for this reason, because there is this risk of judgment, we shouldn't just ignore the secular sins of society. Because not only are they damaging to people, okay, they are damaging, but ultimately they do need to, they're going to be answering to God for them someday. And this brings us to the second point, which is without the covering of Christ, there is judgment and punishment for sin. And that's, if not in this life, then ultimately in the next life, in hell. And there's, there's no getting out of hell. I mean, it's, hell is, is, is tragic, and it's very difficult for many of us to, to grasp and understand. And I can't, you know, do justice of explaining why things are the way that they are. And the fact that people are going to hell for not knowing Christ is something that many of us probably struggle with. Um, very similar to struggling with trying to understand the, the difficulty and severity of the punishment that God has inflicted on the nations of the world, the ones that we were just reading about in Joshua. But for people of today, just like the people of Jericho, we are going to be judged based on this universal standard for, for right or wrong. So how is this a God of love and mercy? Okay, How does that make sense to us? And I think that as we start asking these types of questions, a lot of times what happens is we get really focused on all the evil in the world, all the difficult things that are going on. We start asking God, why, why, why? And that becomes our our quick focus. The thing is, is is that it's important to keep everything in context, all right? And and to do that, for, for me, and maybe this will be helpful for you, it's important for me to focus on the things that God has given to us, the gifts that he has given to us all as mankind. So we're just going to run through this quickly here. The first gift that God has given to us is existence. We exist, all right? He didn't have to do that. It's not owed to us, all right? But this is a gift, 
okay? Second gift, God has given us an opportunity of eternal life. Again, this is a gift. We are not guaranteed. It's not a right to us, but we have an, a, a chance to, to live forever, okay? So we have the gift of eternal life. And not only that, but not only do we have a chance for eternal life, but eternal life can be awesome, all right? We have, we have a chance to live with God in heaven, all right? Again, this is a gift. God didn't have to do that. He could have just said, hey, you got your, you know, 70 plus years here on earth, and that's it. But no, he gave us a chance to live with him for eternity in heaven. Again, this is a gift. Fourthly, he gave us an opportunity to have a relationship with him. I mean, it, you might think it's really cool to have a relationship with somebody that, you know, is, is a mentor of yours or somebody that you really like. But, I mean, this is the creator of the universe, okay? He didn't have to condescend to have a relationship with us, yet he has given all of us that opportunity to have a direct relationship with him. Okay? And the fifth one on here, which may not seem like a gift at first, but he gave us the freedom to accept or deny, with the possible exception of number one, okay, accept or deny any of these gifts. Okay? We can say, hey, we want to take it, or we, we can just leave it. And, and this might seem weird, but, I mean, how many of you, okay, you know, we know that we should eat well, we know we should go to bed on time, you know, we know we should do this, that, or whatever, we should exercise, but who wants to be forced to do those things, okay? Who wants somebody just saying, hey, now it's bedtime, go to bed, you know? We, we, we like to have our freedom. We like to be able to choose to do the thing that's healthy or not, and God has done the same thing in this case. Even though these gifts are amazing, okay, he's given us the freedom to either accept or deny those gifts. And then perhaps the most remarkable thing about all of this is how God chose to fulfill these things, and this was the gift of his son, God in the flesh, dying on the cross, as the creator of the universe, suffering humiliation and extreme physical pain, okay, dying like a common criminal, so that we have this opportunity for eternal life with him. And despite that whole tall order, he did it. And so these gifts alone, without you know, getting sidetracked with the, the difficult questions, the evils in the world, should tell us something about the character and nature of God. And it is clear to me from these things that, that God cares for us, he loves us, and that he is a good God. Okay, again, I can't explain everything. I don't know why everything happens. But these gifts alone should tell us something about the nature and character of God. We are all sinners. Sinners need a savior. So, so yes, the punishment of Jericho may seem extreme. The finality of hell may seem very difficult for us to grasp. It may seem extreme. But understanding and knowing the character of God and not understanding and knowing the details of every single situation of what's going on, it is important that we trust who God is, what he is doing, and that what he is doing is right and just. Well, what does this ultimately mean for us at the end of the day? Well, God has given us the mission to spread the gospel. It's in, it's in the Great Commission, all right? And sometimes this ex means explaining to people that God is a good God. Sometimes it means talking to people about, you know, the, the sin that is in their lives, the, the evil that is going on in the world, helping them uh, struggle s through some of these things. And knowing that God is a good God, this helps us to explain, this helps us to share the gospel, but it is important that we do make it clear and that we understand that there is this universal standard of right and wrong, 
And there is ultimately a punishment for sin for those who are not covered with the blood of Christ. And these passages in Joshua and Deuteronomy give us that framework of understanding. But they also tell us how we should be moving forward, how, again, we should be responding to God and how we should be spreading the gospel. And we don't like telling people about sin. I don't like telling people about sin. But the question, again, that we need to be asking, and we we talked about this earlier, is we are, as Christians, in this walk, okay? First, we need to be asking, are we on God's side? Okay, are we on God's side? Or are we trying to figure out, you know, we got our agenda, we got our way of doing things, and trying to figure out if God's on our side? First, we need to be asking, are we on God's side? Secondly, we need to be remembering that we need to stay in worshipful recognition of who God is, okay? Because that's vital. Again, the relationship is vital. And then the final part, regardless of how ridiculous things may seem that God is calling you to do, despite how much we might not like telling people about sin, we might not like spreading the gospel, we might not like doing all sorts of things that the Bible says, we need to make sure that we are following what God is calling us to do. Just like Joshua, the Battle of Jericho, Going around the city multiple times, he probably didn't like it, didn't make a lot of sense. This is what God is calling us to do. So this is our third and final response to God. And through that, there will be victory and God will be glorified. So this is our call for us today. Lord, we thank you for being our God. And even though we don't understand everything that you do at all times, We don't understand sometimes the the things that have happened before us or the difficulties and the sin and the suffering and the pain in this world, Lord. We know that because of who you are, the gifts that you have given us, Lord, that you are a just and holy God, that you are a good God who truly loves us. And though we may not understand all of these things, we want to seek you in obedience to follow you, Lord, so that you are glorified. We lay all these things before you, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.